Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you once again for joining us as you do each and every week. Before we get started with the episode, just a couple of quick notes. One of our recent episodes, Joe Galloway, you guys seem to love so much. We love the feedback that you guys are giving us asking for more from this guest. That's what we hope to get from you guys uh, through our social media sites, through our email, and our website, hazardground.com. We love that feedback. It's a big part of how we make this show better, so we certainly appreciate it. Speaking of our website, hazardground.com, don't forget our partnership with Amazon. That's where you go, hazardground.com. Just click on the Sponsors tab or scroll down to the bottom of the homepage, find the Amazon banner, click it, do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate that percentage back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. And that partnership is going great, guys. You are doing an amazing job. So please, every time you go to Amazon, do it through our website, hazardground.com. You don't even have to do anything different, just as long as you go to hazardground.com first, you'll help donate to veterans and veterans charities. Of course, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast and keep up with the show and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Now, while that's out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a current member of the United States Army where he served 16 years. He is a master sergeant with multiple deployments under his belt to Iraq, where one time he was hit with a vehicle-borne IED. Another time he was hit with a rocket, managed to survive them both, although he did suffer traumatic brain injuries and now spends his time creating awareness for post-traumatic stress disorder and PTSD. He is Pasha Palanker, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Pasha, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. Now, certainly, and you know, PTSD is a real thing, and it's something we spend a lot of time talking with uh, many of our guests about on the podcast, so we'll get into that coming up later on. We want to start back at the beginning of your career. How and why did you join? So uh, I joined in uh, May 2003, that's uh, uh, that's when I enlisted, but the reason why I joined is uh, my family immigrated here from uh, Soviet Union, uh, Moldova. I was 15 years old when when we moved to the United States, and uh, like the place where we lived is a very rough neighborhood. We, uh, were, we received welfare, like... By by normal standards, it, it was a rough life. But to me, it was uh, like I felt like I was in the movie. Like every morning for the six months, I would wake up and I'd pinch myself. What I city? What city did you move to? You you didn't mention Los the city. Angeles. Los Angeles. Okay. Los, Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. So I was just so grateful to this country for everything that it uh, gave to uh, me and my family that I wanted to give something back. And uh, that's why I joined the joined the army. So when nine eleven happened, what were you thinking? Uh, you know, I remember watching it on the news. It was uh, my first year uh, out of uh, out of high school, and I just remember being in in awe and shock. Like it was surreal. Was any of that part of the reason why, you know, additionally why you wanted to join, or was it just solely because you wanted to give back because America gave to you? Well, that that lit a 
bigger fire under my butt to uh, wanting to do it. And uh, so my, my mom was very anti-military in general because military in Russia, Soviet Union is very different than military here. So, you know, she fought me. She fought me, and then uh, eventually uh, I won. But it took me. It took me a little bit more time. Does she now have a better appreciation for the United States military as opposed to the Russian military? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> but she, you know, she's been she's been through a lot. Just just with all of my adventures in the army. So uh, you know, now that it's, I'm close to the end, she's in a much better place. But she she's been through some. So you raise your right hand, sign the papers, uh, you're off to basic training. Did you know what you were getting into at the time? No. So actually when I was, when I said, like when I decided to join the army, I knew nothing. I didn't know the difference between army, Navy, Marine. I just knew military service and it was army. So I went, uh, talked to the recruiter. I wanted to be in the army, but but I wanted to stay as close to Los Angeles as possible. And that's where my friends and family were. So I was like, I don't care what job you give me, just put me as close to LA as possible. And he's like, all right, I got Fort Irwin. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Fort Irwin. And the only job, the only job there is uh, supply specialist. I was like, all right, cool, let's do it. And uh, so that was my initial contract. But then like a month later, he called me. I was on delayed entry program. And he was like, wait a minute. Like you speak Russian, you're a U.S. citizen. Like so, I was, uh, I was qualified to be to go into the intelligence uh, profession, career field. And she just started throwing everything at me, and he convinced me to go and uh, switch <laughs> uh, and become an MI soldier. And uh, so the way he did it, he gave me a choice. He said, "I can't give you Fort Irwin, but he gave me every other duty station I could go as a." Uh, uh, as an MI guy, and so I got to choose Hawaii, and that was my first duty station. Well, that's not a bad choice. I mean, when you said close to LA, I'm thinking Fort Bliss, I'm like Fort Lewis, <laughs> maybe, Cal- and that's like, oh, wait, Irwin's in California, damn. And I was like, but wait, you know, who wants to sit? No one wants to go to NTC, period, and you just got stationed there. Uh, so fortuitously, uh, you end up in Hawaii at Schofield Barracks. It must have been pretty sweet. Uh, it was, but, um, you know, being an intelligent you have to wait on your clearance. So, and sometimes it takes up to two years, especially something yep. from my background. And, and uh, I remember I got to Hawaii and then for the first 10 months, I was basically cutting grass around Scopo Barracks. And uh, they started, uh, I was in, in a non-deployable unit, but they started looking for volunteers to go out and deploy and to be a part of the counter ID mission that was being stood up. So I, as soon as I heard that, I jumped on it and it was, uh, and it was, uh, in, you know, after that, everything changed for me. I mean, I assume Iraq had already kicked off by the time you enlisted, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. It was, uh, yeah, I, was, I enlisted in May. Okay. Uh, and, two just- months in. Uh, understanding kind of the time frame of the whole thing. So you volunteer for, to go to uh, on a deployment. Uh, where did they end up sending you? And, and give me the kind of the background of the mission and what you're doing. So I was uh, I was attached to an EOD team, 
and uh, it was part of counter IED effort. So, without getting into details, that was we were basically attached at the hip to an EOD team. So, anytime there's an IED within our area, we would go out. We'd take the call, whether it's an IED that was detected and we needed to go and uh, detonate it to clear the route or post flash to be there for post flash. And uh, so the first uh, place was uh, Taji. I think you spent some time in that area, so you're probably familiar with it. Oh, yeah. But, but, uh, I mean, I, I if it wasn't at uh, BIAP where I was uh, initially, I did a convoy once a week to Taji. So uh, very familiar with the area. Um, so it's interesting because when you were there and the IED thing started ramping up, right? Cause it started basically late Oh four into early Oh five. And, uh, you know, obviously grew from there. Um, did you guys feel overwhelmed? I know anybody who's ever been to Baghdad knows that EOD, you can sit on the road and wait for an hour for an EOD team to get there. Cause there's only so many of you guys and the number of IEDs became so big that it was nearly impossible to get to anybody quickly. But did you start to get that sense like it was just roadside bomb, roadside bomb, IED, 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 you know, all day long? Is that what it was for you? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was nonstop. We would go out and take these calls, and sometimes we'd show up. And, I, you know, the whole route is closed, and, and there's traffic for miles. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an overwhelming experience. Um, and it, it, you also felt, like, being a person in the EOD team, they have a very unique truck. So it's like driving around with a target on your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that's, uh, I think that's, that's how that, the suicide bomber, the VBID that happened, it was, they were going after the EOD truck. Um, and then just the way things played out, the guy ended up going after my truck instead. Before you get to that, uh, um, I want to ask you one more question. So, being at- if you can answer it and feel comfortable, being attached to the IED teams, doing the intelligence portion of it, are, are the EOD guys helping you figure out sort of the um, the MO of the bomb and how it was made to help lead you to individuals or an individual who may have made it and created it and placed it? Yeah, it was. Okay. Uh, we were working together. It was it was hand in hand and. Uh, we're attached at the hip and um, same mission, trying to solve this problem. Okay. All right. So uh, towards the end of that first deployment, April 2005, um, it was a suicide bomber in a vehicle. Um, what happened? Tell me the story. Kind of. What do you remember about it? Okay. So I don't know if you remember, there was a mosque. It was about like uh, a mile or two north of Taji up on Route, route 1. There was a lot of IED happening. On the way towards Bakuba, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it it was just I mean we called it the evil bus, but we were coming back from a mission and uh, on the way back to Taji, I was I was the gunner in the vehicle right behind the EOD truck, and you know as we're driving down the route, I noticed this. I don't know why it just the vehicle just got my attention, and uh, as we're driving. The vehicle, you know how they the, the cars would go off the road yep. when when our convoys would pull up. So initially, when the when the lead vehicle came up to it, the car that VBI did the same thing that all the other vehicles do. 
we came off the road. But then uh, as the EOD truck started pulling up to us, it, uh, it started very slowly, started uh, moving towards the EOD vehicle. And uh, when I noticed that, I was like, oh, maybe just uh, not paying attention. So I started firing, started firing off uh, warning shots. So at that point, he, I don't know if he got startled. He just like, kind of like swerved and was almost completely off the road. And I was like, all right, that's, that's that. And then our vehicle was coming up right after him. And as we started approaching him, he started, he started coming in, like pushing into us. And at that point, he was, he was so close. He was probably like two feet away from me that I couldn't use my crew serves. I, I took my rifle and I was standing over the top and just uh, shooting at him. And uh, that must have, I, I didn't see what happened inside the vehicle as I'm shooting over the top, but I must have uh, hit him because he did, did not detonate right there and, and there. And as I'm shooting, my driver, my driver went off the road into the median, drove around him. And then when he was about 15 feet behind me, like our eyes were locked and the thing went up, got detonated. There's actually an Al Qaeda video of that whole uh, really incident. Yeah, is it still on the web now? <laughs> yeah, I can I can send it to you. No, I'm just curious. I I, I would like to see it. Um, it's eerie the You're way probably seen it. I probably have. Uh, it's eerie the way you tell that story. I had a, such a similar thing happen to us, uh, if I can real quick. So when you know we ran our convoys, if we ever ran in traffic, like let's say we're going north on on route Tampa. Right. Um, and whenever we hit traffic, we just jump the median and drive northbound in the southbound lane. And so yeah. once we did that, you know, you'd see cars coming the other direction, part like the red sea. And it would happen a half mile down the road. Like everybody knew. And yeah. I had the same thing happen to me. A half, I'm, I'm looking deep down the road. Like I'm not looking 10, 15 meters in front of me. I'm looking a hundred, 200 meters down the road. Um, to make sure, you know, we're not rolling up on anything because I know my driver's looking 50 meters in front of him. And so I remember before we got hit, everybody's starting to part. And like you said, my eyes locked on this one vehicle. And it was this white little four-door sedan. And for whatever reason, 200 meters down the road, I see him like swerving in and then going out. And it's swerving in and then going out. I'm looking at this thing going, the hell is that guy doing? And then I just we start coming up on him. We're going 60 miles an hour. We start coming up on him. And then literally at the last minute, he swerved right out in front of us. Bam, head-on collision. Uh, he, his charge never detonated. Um, we clear it out quick. Yeah. I mean, I, I got a concussion. I hit my, I had a, uh, a fracture my left wrist just because we were going forward with so much force. I braced myself against the windshield. Um, uh, our truck was destroyed. Like we literally, the whole front end was blown up. Thank God we had that little, uh, we, we welded those I beams to the front. We put this dude's uh-huh. front seat in his back seat. Like we were going that fast in a straight head on collision. It was, it was violent. It was ugly. Uh, and I remember, you know, after we cleared out and saw what was going on, um, you know, you walk back to the car, that dude, if he survived that crash, it was a miracle. I don't think he ever did, but, um, it it was, it was ugly stuff, uh, to say, but it was just one of those things when you talk about, you, you don't know why you notice that one thing, but it sticks with you and it always sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah, the gut, gut feeling. There's something to that. All right, so you come uh, I'm away. Curious, what? Go ahead. What? What did he have? What? What kind of charge did, did he have inside the vehicle? He had two rounds in the trunk. 
Um, you know, we saw the wires and, and we just cleared out. It did, we weren't we weren't about to yeah. stay around and find out. Um, you know, we called uh, the Iraqi the Iraqi police showed up very quickly on the scene. Um, and at the time, I was with the special ops community. Called it up, just let them know what, what had happened. We got the hell out of Dodge and continued. We were actually going to Taju that morning. Now that I think about it, um, huh. we uh, uh, we cleared out, called it up, and it was done. We the, the IPs took care of it because by the time we headed back a couple hours later, it was off the road. So okay. But once, because we we hit the car with such force, the trunk pops open, right? So we hit the front of the car head on, and the trunk pops open, and you could see it. And we just all of a sudden, it's after you're done crapping your pants, you know, it's everybody get the hell out, yeah. you know, back the vehicle up as quick oh, as yeah. you can and get the hell out. And 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 um, the other thing too is when it had happened, um, we were we were leading a a convoy of Iraqi trucks with us, so I had a whole bunch of my Iraqi soldiers that I was training. Because I was doing foreign internal defense at the time, and uh, you know we all stopped for you know the first minute or two after it happened, and then there's just this swarm of like 200 civilians sitting on the side of the road because you hear this massive boom, right? And everybody's coming yeah. out to see. That's when I really got nervous more than anything. I'm like, there's a crowd of people, you know, coming around us quickly, and we are severely outnumbered by the number of people there. Uh, and I didn't bother to check to see who had guns, but I'm just, you know, you start to worry about this mob yeah. that's in the middle of the street yeah. coming after you because you're the only Americans around. And again, there was all Iraqi soldiers with us. So it was like three American vehicles and like six Iraqi Jundi trucks. You know what I'm saying? The jingle trucks that they would drive that we were moving around. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it became, a, that was one of the most, you know, overcome fear. I'm like, we got to get the hell out of here fast because this is not going to end up well. Um, this is not the place I want to be. I don't care if they're friendly or not. I'm not going to sit around with 200 people on the side of the road. So we need to move. And so we did, and uh, yeah. tried to repair the we tried to repair the vehicle. Um, we got it up and running, and on the way back, the whole like engine exploded. Oil started going all, all over the the windshield. We were leaking from everything. We literally had to push the vehicle all the way back down Route One to buy up uh, to get through the gate. We we got banged up that day. It was pretty bad. How how close were you to the gate when the engine blew up? Ah, uh, God, we had about two miles to go. So the vehicle was still sort of running. We just left it neutral, had the Humvee behind it, push it all the way through. Okay. okay. Yeah. Luckily, it was yeah. it was pretty close. But I remember the mechanic was in the backseat of my vehicle, the one mechanic we took with us. And as soon as it blowed, as soon as the, 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 every, the oil started squirting everywhere, he just screams in the back, fuck, you know, because he had worked on it for like two hours and he thought he'd solved it. I mean, literally, he had duct tape and glue. I mean, he was just trying to keep it. He's like, I think I got it, sir. I think I got it. I'm like, here, all right, let's go. Let's roll. And so we start rolling, and so I'm looking back in the back seat. He's like, see, I told you, I told you. And then we get like two miles outside the gate, and the thing explodes, and he just starts cursing up a storm. I'm like, ah, you shouldn't have spoke too soon. So anyway, good times, man, good times. All right, anyway, back to you. Okay, uh, thank you for letting me tell that story. But, uh, but back to yeah. you. So this thing goes off. Um, after the bomb explodes, what do you remember immediately after? Uh, so we stopped, we stopped right away after – after uh, the IED goes up, we stop right away. There's one more vehicle behind us, so we got separated. And uh, since we had, uh, and I remember like we stopped, and uh, like my my driver and TT, they they look at they they weren't sure what happened with me, so they're just like checking up on me. And I just remember sitting there, uh, my legs were shaking. I was like, is that? Everything happened so quick, and it was a uh, surreal experience, obviously, like to go through something like that. 
and especially to have that eye to eye contact with a suicide bomber right after, right as he's uh, blown up. I mean, it's one of the things they'll stay with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, then we stopped. There was actually this happened right in between. There were two tanks. One, uh, one to the north of the explosion, one to the south. So it was already kind of because it was right next to that uh, mosque where, where a lot of bad shit happened. Um, so the area was secure. So then we went out, like the UAD guy did uh, did his thing, and I got to walk around. And uh, just, I don't know, just taking in, like, the scene and, like, bits and pieces of the suicide bomber everywhere. Uh, yeah, and then the rest of the, the, rest of the day is kind of hazy. I was, I was in my own little world after that. Did you, at the time, feel like the blast had any physical effects on you? So, that was my first close-up experience with a blast. And I did not know, like, what a TBI feels like. Back then, nobody gave a shit about TBI. So, back then, I had no idea. Like, I thought it was just adrenaline. I was out of it for a few weeks. Uh, you know, the headaches, the nausea, everything that comes with the TBI. But like we talked about earlier, it was a very busy time for IED, so there's not really time to sit down and and, and like think about what happened because you're, you're on to the next thing. And uh, that's, you know, that's as far as... Uh, that's as far as it went for me. Like, I, like yeah, that happened, but let's keep pushing forward. Yeah, and um, I, I wonder, when you look back on it, I know you didn't think much about it then because it was just simply, hey, there's another day, there's another mission, and here we go. Looking back on it, if they had said to you at the time, hey, Posh, man, take two or three days and just decompress, you know, just hit a reset button and, and we'll assess things and we'll come back out. Do you think that would have been better looking back on it? Uh, yeah, it definitely would have been better because that happened in 20, when, uh, when I got hurt in 2015, I got those few days and those few days made a pretty, pretty big difference. How so? Uh, just, um, I think just taking the time to process what happened and to deal with your symptoms, it's like, getting a little tune-up after, like, your, the story you just said about getting, like, crashing into that, into your VDID. Like, like your brain just wants to go through a traumatic experience. It, is it better to take a break, fix it up, clean it up, and get it, get yourself back out into the fight, or just push through? Um, I think it's better to tune things up and then and then get back at a to where you can perform better. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. For me at least, and this is just personal to me, but part of me feels like if I would have had two or three days after that incident to sit there, all I would have done was think about it. Like to a point where it might have consumed me. For me to move, turn the page and move on to something else, um I think in a strange way may have helped me. Now I still have like flashbacks about that particular event and, and certain things still kind of stay with me about it. Part of me, now that I'm, as, as I'm listening to you talk, part of me thinks that 
If I had sat there and thought about that event more, I wonder if the flashbacks would have been better or worse. Like, would there have been less of them or would there have been more of them if I had time to sit there and stew for a couple of days and think about everything that just had happened? Because in a certain sense, the idea of coming to grips with your own mortality can be overwhelming and that fear can consume you and it's normal. That happens to everybody. But I think the... Um, the people who just recognize that and, and embrace it and say, look, this is part of the job and this is part of what goes on. I can't let that overwhelm me and just move on to the next one. I think there's some value in that. No. Well, I, so I think this is a individual, like I think that like individual situation depends on, I think it depends on the situation and it depends on the individual. Cause we all handle things differently. differently. Like right, why yeah. do some people, why do some people thrive through PTSD and why do some people, you know, go the opposite route? I, I think with that stuff, it's like, I understand the value of just like after that happens, just keep pushing so that you don't get kind of like walk it off and keep, keep, uh, stay in the game, stay in the fight. I, I completely understand the value of that. For me, for that situation, because nobody, none of the, uh, people, on, uh, service members got hurt during that VBID. There was not, I didn't have any, uh, like, any, you know, bad memories about it. It was just, like, unbelievable experience that, that I just went through. You know, so so I didn't have a lot of heartache, heartache with that experience. It, just, it happened. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether it's taking me or just get back into the fight. I think it depends. Do you think that uh, in the moments after that happened, did you have time to think about, holy crap, I could have just died? I mean, did that ever, you know, overwhelm you at all? So I never thought I, I almost just died. Like, I've had few of these experiences now, and I, I just never, I just, I just don't think, don't think like that. It's not like a, Bavada thing. I didn't. My brain is just not wired that way. Right. Maybe, maybe if it was, I wouldn't get into these situations. Like, <laughs> um, I just like I had an even even uh, more surreal experience later on in that deployment uh, with the IED, and and even back then, uh, I just I just. Uh, I don't know. I just didn't think. Don't. I just didn't think like that. Like I, I almost died. You okay. Know? Let's kind of. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time because you know the next thing that happened to you was was ten years later. But how many more deployments do you go on in between two thousand five and two thousand fifteen? And how much of any of this stuff is coming back to you? Well, so before before we get to get it, get into that, so. At the end of that deployment, I was about two weeks out from going home. I had uh, probably the most significant and the closest I've been to death. Like my per- my personal experience that happened uh, in September of 2005. Uh, that's probably the biggest. That's something that's the biggest part of me. Like out of all of my uh, running with death. So I, like I don't want to. I want to talk about that one, if you don't mind. That's fine. I mean, let me ask you, is it because of 
the event still haunts you or is it because of an emotional sort of detachment from it? Um, it doesn't haunt me. It's, I, I have, this is the event where I lost hearing in my last year and I have very loud ringing. So it's always, it's always with me. Like that, that, that explosion is always with me. And whenever I'm going through a rough time, like it's a quick touch point back to that day. And it's actually tomorrow is going to be, uh, what is it? 14 years since that day. Uh, since that day happened, uh, my 14 year anniversary of that alive day. But during, so for that, it, we were two weeks out and I was in a three man team. We were doing left seat, right seat with a team that came in to replace us. It was not my day. I was, was my day off, but my team leader threw out his back in the morning and the call came in. So I was like, I'll take your spot. So we went out. Uh, it was a typical IED call. We blew it up, went in to look for any secondary as we're going down the road to see a wire. So we were on back, send the robot down there. The robot looks for where, where's the wire going and couldn't find anything. So me and the EOD guy went back down. And as he's pulling on that wire, trying to figure out where it's going, I was like, I'm going to walk away from you. And I was walking around looking to see if I can find anything from the first IED. And I'm standing in the middle of the road. And uh, right in the middle, there's a piece of blue electrical tape, obviously a piece from the first IED. So I just like, like feeling it with my toes and I kick it and it goes to the side of the road. I take my three or four steps and I'm, as I'm standing there looking at it, boom, like everything around me goes just orange. And then uh, the next thing I remember, I'm just laying on the ground. And, like everything is falling on top of me and I can't feel anything. I can't feel shit. So at that point, I went through this surreal experience. I was like, is this it? Like this, like, like, because we all wonder what it's like to die. So like, I even remember thinking back then, like during that deployment, I watched a bunch of uh, Simpsons episodes. So I remember it, like Homer Simpson, how his body just elevates, his soul elevates from his body every time he does something stupid. I was waiting for something like that to happen. <laughs> and and uh, as I'm laying there, I start to feel burn, like burning in the back of my legs. And I was like, oh shit, I can feel that. I'm alive. Oh, my legs are gone. And then I wiggle my toes and I could feel them pressing against my boots. I was like, fuck yeah. And then I do the same thing. I, I touched uh, my, like the tips of my, my index finger and my thumb and I could feel both my hand that's still there. And then I check my, my groin area. I was like, oh, holy smokes. And then by that time, the medic ran up to me and like the person, he was like, holy shit. Um, so then like they end up examining me and the EOD guy told me there were at least five, one, five, five rounds under me. Oh my God. When that thing went off, the blast seat was 15 feet wide, probably like 60 feet long, eight feet wide and six feet deep. And I was standing inside of it and I flew, I don't know, 10, 15 feet, but out of all that travel, not one of them touched me. It was just it was unbelievable. Uh, so, extremely lucky. 
know, it was your angel flight, yeah. man. That 10, 15 feet, you were an angel. What, whatever, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was something. Um, but I just remember they, they put me on a stretcher and they started carrying me in. They like somebody shooting at someone at that point. But I, I like, I didn't have anything. I wasn't missing anything. I was like, let me, I want to walk away from this thing. So that was, that was my last, I knew that was my last trip out, out of the wire during that deployment. So I got up, I took a picture of that blast seat and I very slowly like walked like a hundred meters to the Hungi. Um, Why was it so important for you to walk? I don't know. I just, there was just something in me. There's like, I want to walk away from this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, and I'm kind of thinking about your, your question from the VDID is like, do you think it, like, do you think it's important? Like, do you think it would have been beneficial for you to take a few days off? Like after that one, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but after that one, I remember it was probably a few months that I had like liquid draining out of my ear, like that, whatever liquid is in your head. I mean, you, you lost your ear, your hearing, your left ear from that. Um, was, was there, I mean, I assume there was massive ringing after the whole thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I still have it. So I'm listening to it as we speak. And, uh, actually I remember when they brought me back, when we got back on base, it brought me to the, to see the doc and the doc looked in my ear and was like, uh, that will heal in about six to eight weeks and the ringing will stop. It'll be a good. And, uh, yeah, that was not even close. I mean, obviously you suffered a concussion and more from that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Did they diagnose you at the time of the concussion? No, that was 2005, <laughs> man. Nobody, that was not a thing, you know? And, uh, like, if you only knew like the, the impact of these invisible, like the stuff that nobody can see. Like, I, I'd much rather have a scar on my body than, like, to deal with this stuff. Right. Because, and these people can understand, like, if you're physically, if you're physically hurt. All right. Um, um, yeah. Let me ask you. You were awarded a Purple Heart for that. And, and I ask you this sort of lightly, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, does it bother you that you got a purple heart and yet you were able to walk away from the thing? It doesn't bother me, but it's something that I think about a lot because, uh, I have few friends who are triple amputees. Right. And they, what they've been through, like I, I could not imagine and uh, I have two purple hearts now, but they they have one, and that that like there's definitely guilt that uh, comes with these two purple hearts. When I think about other guys that have suffered a lot more than I have, um, the only reason I ask that, Pasha, is because you know just from my own experience, you know how soldiers can be sometimes, and and. Maybe they ask it in jest, but, you know, after a couple of incidents, they looked at me, are we going to get Purple Hearts, sir? And I looked at him like, are you out of your flipping mind? You're fine. Like, you're fine. 
Like, I, I'm not being a tough guy here. I'm like, uh, you're, you're walking. You have all your limbs. Like, you, you didn't even shed blood. <laughs> like, you're going to look me in the yeah. eye and ask me that question. Are you serious? <laughs> so I was just curious well, uh, how your reaction was. Because I know a lot of guys who are like, and I hate it. I, I hate that I have it. Yeah. I So Purple Heart, these Purple Hearts, they have also been, you know, what I noticed, a lot of guys that, that have had similar experiences, maybe not as bad. Like maybe they're right on the border. Should they get a Purple Heart or not? Mm-hmm. Um now that everything is said and done and they're out and they're struggling with these invisible wounds, like having a purple heart, I think gives you a little bit of like, okay, like there's something there. I know what you're saying. When, I, I, when, I see what you're saying. When somebody, yeah. Yeah. If somebody just is, is a combat vet. I, I like, I see that there's a different, like I've noticed there's a different level of treatment, having a purple heart and not having a purple heart. No, that's fair. And, and, uh, I, and I, I respect that. I really that. feel for I those guys. No, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's, I, I didn't think of that. And I, I apologize if I offended you or anybody listening. Um, I, I was a little no, short-sighted in thinking about that, but I, I, that makes sense because as you said, but sometimes if, you wish you had that scar because it's easier for people to understand. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the biggest struggles with, with this stuff that nobody can see. Like, even my wife has been, like, a trooper. Like, she's been through so much, and she's lived with, with me. We've been married for 10 years. But even 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 after all this time, it's still hard for her to understand why it is that I can't do certain things. Like, if, if I'm missing, like, my leg or, like, below the knee amputation, you're not going to expect me to go and just run a marathon. That's very, that's, that's very understandable. But if I have a hard time being in like places with lots of stimulation, why? Like that doesn't make sense to somebody who has not been through what we've been through. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I think that's where purple heart helps. No, I, I get that makes sense. And that's fair. And again, I apologize if anybody got offended, but I, I just, you know, um, in experience in doing this, you know, there are some people who are looking for just to, to pin a medal on their chest, uh, unfortunately, because it kind of does a disservice to all of us. And I'm sure if you've been in the military long enough, like we have, you run into those people. Um, and and yeah. it, it kind of casts a, a, a bad shadow. Um, and, of course, there's all that stolen valor BS that people do, which is also really stupid. But oh, yeah. Neither here nor there. Yeah. All right. Fast forward to 2015. You're back in Iraq uh, and you're over in Fallujah. And this time, <laughs> it was a rocket that was after you. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I, so that deployment, I, was, I went all over Iraq, like all over the country. And I got to Fallujah, it was in TQ, for those of you who are familiar with it. And I got there the night before, and then the next morning, uh, like we've had some indirect fire coming in that was, uh, land like 500 meters short or 500 meters long like we would hear it but it was not a big deal but man this thing came in and like our we were on a tiny little compound and it hit Magdad in the middle of it like destroyed two home beats and uh there was nothing like we had some 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 of the cement barriers but there was not even enough space to fit all of us in uh so, yeah, it just it happens. 
the worst part about that, uh, like I was, uh, I was on one end, there was another, uh, guy on the other end, like he got probably the brunt of the blast from that rocket. But the worst part after that is knowing that they have you dialed in and then mm-hmm. yeah. like, how do, you, how do you sleep at night? Cause we were just in the trailer. Like there's nothing. Like I remember sleeping full body armor with a helmet on, like on a cot. And that was probably the worst part about that, that situation. Yeah. Again, we, we had one similar on my second deployment where they, they shot a mortar right into where, you know, the, the for people aren't military. They're called chews containerized housing units, but landed right, right next to the whole in the middle of the, the where all the chews were, but you know, literally about five feet from where a chew was. Thankfully that guy was on leave and his room was empty. So everything that went through that little, you know, tin can, um, he wasn't there for, but you know, when they're that dialed in, it's like, damn, you know, uh, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's hard to, hard to rest. There are nights where the, uh, remember, you, are you familiar with the JDAM is and the, uh, the, the alarm that would go yeah. off? Uh, yeah. So we, yeah. when that alarm goes off, man, like you, you pop out of bed, uh, and I literally pop out my door and just jump in the bunker right next to where my chew was. I mean, it, it became so routine, you know, like I could literally in two hops be out of bed and under the bunker out the door. Like it, it, some of it comes so quick yeah. um, and it becomes such a reaction. It's like, what the hell do you do? You know? Yeah. You, you got like five seconds, right? Before, yep. Like from, from the arm to, to impact. Uh, yeah. There's some funny stories that happened. Like, you know, there's always humor in combat, but I remember after that, that rocket hit, uh, every time that alarm, before that, the alarms would go off and we kind of half lazy, like kind of lazily stroll into the bunker. But after that thing hit, like no matter what you were doing, you're, you're going to run. And there was, uh, I think there was only two of those things on the base, like two of those little bunkers. And, uh, you would sit in there packing their like sardines. And like, I remember one Italian dude, like holding his like dirty ass straws. And a guy that's like short of him standing there, like right his face, right in his dirty underwear, <laughs> and like we're all kind of laughing, laughing about it. You know, it's funny, uh, um, and this is kind of PTSD wrapped up in a little nutshell here. Um, so that JDAM would make an alarm, right? So you, you'd hear the whistle, you know, and the JDAM would go off immediately, right? So I'm I'm yeah. back from deployment. This is my second deployment. I'm back from deployment. Maybe I don't know, less than thirty days, and I'm in my uh, I'm, I'm back at work. I went right back to work immediately. Didn't even take any time off because I just wanted to get back to life, you know. And I was talking to a guy in his office, and you know the iPhone has all the different kind of alarms on it. Yeah, one yeah, of them yeah, sounds yeah. exactly like that JDM, <laughs> and that was his ringtone. And his phone rang, and when it happened, I literally dove underneath his desk. Out of pure reaction, I dove underneath his desk, and uh, and uh, it took me like three or four seconds to realize what the hell it was and what was going on. Pop back up, and he's looking at me like I literally had just a third eyeball and a tongue growing out of the middle of my head. And I'm like, "That the uh, old habits die hard." Got it. Thanks. That's 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 not the JDAM. Just your phone. Got it. Noted. But that's PTSD wrapped up in a nutshell, folks. Yeah, I, I know exactly that long you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. even to this day when I hear it, my mind just goes right to, you know, my, my, my neck snaps and my eyes yeah. bug out real quick. And I'm like, okay, 
All right, because it stays with you. It's it's the same thing. Um, and, and again, this is just a personal thing with me. Fireworks on the Fourth of July. I'm inside the house, man. I, I just did. Yeah. yeah. Two, not all of them, but some of them are very, very similar. And you know, I can remember um, one Fourth of July. You know, it was out with the with the wife and the kids, and you know, the kids are watching one of their first fireworks shows, and. These the, the fireworks are going off, and I just start hearing radio calls in my ear, right? Like I hear guys' voices on the radio in my ear, and I, it just—I don't know why. It's the first time that had ever happened that I started hearing radio voices, but it went on for like ten minutes because the whole fireworks show lasted like fifteen minutes, you know. And, and it's stuff like that that you know I don't know if I'll ever get away from, but um, you just kind of learn to cope with and deal with. Yeah, that's the key. Like these experiences, they'll be part of us for for the rest of our lives. And uh, yeah, you know, like at this point, I'm 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 in a much better place where, than where I was after I came back from that point in 2015. So, like, I'm grateful for them. But man, it's it's hard to live with them when when you don't understand like what the fuck is going on. When you're just feeling these things and you're jumping under these deaths that were like panic attacks in grocery stores. Uh, yeah. And it's a little, like, little stupid things that take you back, take you back there. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they're, they're, you don't even know what the triggers are because if you could pinpoint them all, it'd be a lot easier, right? You could you just avoid them. But you don't know what the triggers yeah. are. Sometimes they just come out of nowhere uh, and it happens. But let me ask you here, Posh, because PTSD wasn't a thing after your first deployment, right? Um it was a thing after your second deployment. And so I wonder at what point in time, um, was there a point in time in between 05 and 15 where you thought you might have had PTSD? Man, this is, this question is so difficult to answer because like, again, looking back from 2005 and 2015, I feel like I was slowly rolling down the hill like into a bad place. And uh, when 2015 happened, I fell off a cliff. Like it, it ex- like expedited my process to, to where like I could not function after 20, after I got home from 2015, uh, from the 2015 deployment. And I was, I was forced to get home. I don't, I think that that deployment did not happen or if, if I didn't get hurt again, then I would would have continued to roll down that hill until, uh, like, I would have gotten to the bottom and not even realized that I was there. So, to answer your question, I did not think I had a problem. I did not think I had PTSD because I thought PTSD was something different than what it is. Uh, like, I remember I even got, have you heard of STB, the Stella Gingo block mm-hmm. shot? It was, it was just on 60 Minutes, Dr. Sean Mulvaney. I was one of the first guys that he was trying that stuff on. Um, and I remember getting them in like 2013, 2014. And uh, that was for PTSD. But even then, I, I was like, I'm good. Like, I I did not I did not uh, seek any help. I just, that shot, that was it. It was, you know, was kind of like taking a motion for a headache. And then you move on. And uh, I think that's the, 
that's the danger of PTSD. Yeah. It's, it's that we're, we're living with it. We're suffering from it without realizing. And because we don't realize what's happening, instead of dealing with that pain, we numb it. And because we numb the pain, we built, we built these. This is, this is what I did. So I don't want to speak for everybody. That's what I did. I built, I built these habits, these bad habits that slowly caused my life to spiral out of control. And then you lose yourself, you lose your identity in the process. When you say out of control, and, uh, can you tell me what you mean? Can you describe what out of control was? Well, the biggest thing for me was anger. Like my anger was so, was so bad. Um, like I, so I would, because we have that social pressure and the peer pressure at work where you, you want to keep it together in front of your peers. Right. So I'm still at work. I still do my job. I keep it together, but living with TBI and PTSD, you have limited amount of bandwidth to deal, just to deal with life in general. So by the time I would get home, like I could not take two of my, I have four boys and I couldn't take two of them talking to me at the same time. God forbid somebody would like throw a glass of water on the table or just, I would overreact and, uh, you know, the whole night is ruined and then I have the sense of guilt. So then what do you, what do I do when I'm like, when I'm feeling like that? I drink, I would drink to like numb the pain and make it go away. And then that cycle would repeat itself and that it lasted for years. But what happens when you drink, when you drink, you don't, you sleep like shit. When you sleep like shit, you, the next day you don't have the energy to, to exercise, to take care of your body. So you start gaining weight. Uh, and when you, what else, what else do you do when you feel like shit? You, you eat junk food. Cause that's what we crave when we don't feel good. So it, it's these like sleep, nutrition and exercise. They, I feel like they all go by the wayside when you start falling into this cycle and start building these bad habits. And, uh, like I felt like I lost myself. I was not, I was not the person like the soldier that I wanted to be. I was not the dad or the husband that I wanted to be. Um, and because I, because of that 2015 deployment, I was able to realize that without like, it, because it expedited my process. You know, if, if I put a, a rock, like if I, if I give you a weight and put it in your ruck and slowly over time, you're going to get heavier, but you're not going to feel it the same way. If I just put like a hundred pounds dumbbell in there, you're going to feel that difference much quicker. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's what that get that 2016 deployment did for me. It's like, Oh shit, I need help. So that's when my journey to recovery started realizing that I'm fucked up and I need help. Let me ask you, um, so you meet somebody like me, for example, who's in the military, who told you some of the stories that I told you. What would you say to them if they said, no, I don't have PTSD, I'm fine? So it's very hard to convince somebody, like, whether they have PTSD or not. What I would do is I would ask them questions. 
because I know how PTSD impacts me and how PTSD impacts family. So I would just ask questions based on my life experiences. And uh, the only way you get somebody to really see something is they have to figure it out themselves. And, and, and the way I would do it is by asking the right questions. Yeah, I think that's how I would approach that. Let me just be raw and real for a moment. So I've never sought treatment for it. Um, I've never uh, wanted to, um, despite the fact that, you know, I still have flashbacks, um, you know, some of the anger issues that you talk about, you know, how you'd snap at little things I've experienced. Um, there's there's several reasons why. And I, I think these reasons are germane to a lot of people. One is somebody's still serving. I don't want to go down that road because I want to finish my career. Because I know the minute I go down that road, the army can turn around and say, you're done. And I'm not willing to risk yeah. that at this point. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, I don't want to go back through the VA. I, I, don't, I, I mean, to get my first round of disability was nearly a two-year process, and I just don't feel like doing it again. It, it, the letters, the phone calls, the doctor's appointments, I don't need it. it it's like an extra aggravation yeah. with everything else that I don't even want to be bothered with. Um, now, short of somebody who's, you know, I, I mean, I listen. Again, being raw, I go to therapy for a variety of reasons. You know, I mean, it's just, I think everybody needs it. I think it's, you know, your tune-up, as you talked about. I think everybody could use one. Everybody needs a therapist. Um, but short of doing that, there's nothing else I am actively doing to treat any of the symptoms that I have. So when you hear somebody say something like that, do you feel like you, you want to convince them maybe they should go seek treatment or no? Um. I see. I feel like, like it sounds like you're doing well, right? You, you're living with your symptoms, and, and you're doing pretty well. You're progressing your career. You're part of this pretty awesome podcast. You're making a difference. But if you if you treat the system, you can you can improve things by addressing the symptoms that you're dealing with. Because I know. It does not feel good for me to snap at my kids over something that's not then because of me, not because they did something wrong, but it's because I don't have control of my anger, right? So if, if uh, let's just use that like as an example. Okay, that's fair because that happens to me a lot, by the way. Yeah, and so one of my like after, after that 2015 employment, my wake up call was. When I saw my anger, like the way I talked to my kids, I saw it in my kids the way they're talking to each other, and and that was like, like I had so much guilt that came with that, and continuing to treat our kids in that way, they are going to grow up with RTPSD. So that's why I think it's important to get that out of control, like and specifically anger. Anger is so common. And, uh, you know, being later on in my career, I see, I see a lot of kids like that have been messed up by their, by their parents' PTSD. It's a scary thought there, Pasha. I mean, like it really just hit me with a dose of reality. When you say that your kids are going to grow up with your PTSD, that that's a wake up call. Well, it is, you know, the kids, you can tell your kids whatever you want, but they, they don't listen to what we do. They're repeat. They don't listen to what we say. They repeat what we do. Right. You know, that's just the reality. But you know what? I've also noticed that as soon as I started learning how to handle my anger, 
uh, I've noticed an improvement in my kids. And now as my son goes to therapy, I go to therapy with him. And something that used to be like um, a bad part of our life, like something that is very negative, is turning into a positive because now it's a bonding experience and we're learning we're learning together how to go through this process. And uh, I think he's, he's going to be at an advantage because he's learning how to deal with his emotions at a young age compared to me when I started learning about this when I was in my 30s. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot that can be done. It just like the first step is realizing that something needs to be done. And you, you have to find your own reasons why it's important for you to do more than what you're doing. If you still continue to struggle with these episodes of anger. So where do people go now if they want help? Like, what do you tell people who, who think that they may need, may need help? So the first thing I would do is if, if, if you're a veteran and first, the first step is just go and be around other veterans. There's nothing like going to veteran events, like especially after you've been away from it. Like, I remember, I remember that feeling. Uh, I like I went on a fishing trip, and there was a bunch of other combat vets there, and I used to carry this like huge. I felt like very heavy pressure on my chest, and and like. I felt like he was crushing me like day in and day out. And when I went to that veteran event, like, it was the first time in a long time that I felt understood, that I felt like, uh, I don't know, like I belong. Even though I was still on active duty, it was just, it was just something different about going to a veteran event and just not worried, not being worried about the job, just like spending time with the guys. And, and feeling understood. So, first step is find a veteran community around you. And there's so many of them. Like, Facebook is really powerful tool for, for finding all that stuff. And then there's so many, like, I know you had a, a bunch of people from Headstrong and uh, you said that I was involved with them. But they make it so, so simple and so easy for you to get help. The, the only thing you need to do is just call a phone number and they'll take care of the rest. Right. Uh, but Headstrong is not, uh, that's just the first thing that popped into my head. Like, uh, there's, other, there's other organizations like doing stuff like becoming part of Team Rubicon where you continue to serve and you're around other veterans. It's, you essentially, like if you're struggling you're broken. And how do you fix yourself when you're broken? You build yourself back up. So, and you build yourself back up by, uh, by, uh, taking care of yourself, by putting yourself in the right environment. That's how I would do it. That's the advice that I would give to other guys who are struggling, but you got, you got to take action. So you're coming up on the uh, the end of your career, um, and if you're comfortable talking about it, uh, you're you're in front of a medical board right now. Um, is yeah. any, is any of you 
sort of disappointed or upset that you're not going to be able to get to 20 years because of, of the medical situation? Yeah, I do feel like uh, it's going to feel a little bit incomplete. But, uh, you know, at the same time, they've been uh, they've been trying to get me in front of the med board since probably five years ago. And I, I kept fighting it off and fighting it off. But now I feel it. Like, I can't. I, I struggle so bad with, uh, like, administrative stuff. That, like the last, I was uh, in COIC of uh, a training shop for my battalion. I couldn't do, I couldn't write evaluations for my for my soldiers. I had to have a friend, actually a couple of friends, who would do it for me. It's just like I feel that it's time. Well, is there is there some like, sort of relief in that? Is there some sort of you know release in that you're not fighting it anymore? That you're just kind of letting what will be will be. Yeah. It, at first it was a struggle. Like at first it was, again, it's, it's a big part of my identity, uh, being a soldier. Uh, but once I got, once I got over it, like once I realized there's more to life that I can serve in different ways in, in different capacities. Now it's like, okay, I see a new path and I can start building myself up. And, and getting ready for this next phase of my life where I can continue to serve. Well, Pasha, I mean, your honesty has been amazing. Um, I think the message is certainly important. It's poignant and clear. Uh, and certainly, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation, uh, I think, speaks to where we are when it comes to PTSD, because it's not a conversation we would have had 10 years ago. It's not a conversation people wanted to have 10 years ago. And you and I here, two basic strangers, are sitting here sharing stories uh, about some of the most personal things that have affected us throughout our careers, and uh, I think that speaks volumes to where we are in this discussion. Yeah, and I think that's the key. That's the key to solving this veteran suicide problem. It's it's us talking about it, uh, us helping those of us that have been there, helping those who are still in the middle of that struggle. And, uh, you know, that's going to be, that's what I'm going to do once I'm retired. I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I feel like I've been rambling for the last hour. <laughs> no, not at all. Man. I, I'm going to continue to talk about PTSD and just hoping to raise awareness so people, so guys can start taking care of themselves by realizing what's happening. Otherwise, it's like you're fighting an invisible enemy. It's definitely not rambling, brother. There's, there's a lot you said that people need to hear. Um, there's a lot you said that people um, have been wanting to hear, um, that they, there's somebody just like them out there struggling with the same thing. So far from rambling, brother. Yeah, and I'll just, I'll just extend this invitation. If any of you guys are struggling out there, you can find me on any of the like, social media stuff. Send me a message, Pasha Palanker. Uh, and uh, I'll help with in whatever way I can. On that note, Pasha, thank you so much again for your time. We certainly appreciate it. You, you've been outstanding. I love sharing stories with you, brother, and uh, uh, let's have a cold one together someday in the future, man. I would love that, Mark. Thanks for sharing your your tough experiences as well. Pasha Palenka, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. 
Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done, all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot HTM.